0: North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Today, we have an extravaganza holiday episode of The Impossible State. We have some of the greatest minds in Korea and Japan policy that exist in the world today. We have, of course, Dr. Victor Cha, the Korea chair at CSIS. We have Dr. Michael Green, the Japan chair at CSIS. We have Dr. Eva Peshova. The Senior Japan Fellow at the Free University of Brussels, and Dr. Ramon Pacheco Pardo, who is the Korea Chair, also at the Free University of Brussels. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Impossible State. What a party for The Impossible State! We've never had this much expertise all at once on the same podcast. So I think we got to get right into it. Let's chop it up. What is the current state of Japan Korea relations? How did it get so bad? Whose fault was it? Was it South Korea, the court ruling? Was it U.S. neglect? Mike, is it Abe's views on comfort women? Is it all of the above? Let's chop it up. This is really something that we can talk about here.
1: Why don't we go to Mike mic first? Yeah, it's all Europe's fault, obviously. So we'll have to hear from, <laughs> from Eva and Ramon how they're going to make up for what they've done to the Korean Peninsula and the body of water between Japan and Korea, which I can't even name without getting in trouble, the Sea of Japan, the East Sea. <laughs> you know, the proximate cause is this court case in Korea that went to the Supreme Court, which basically said that the um, 1965 peace treaty of normalization between Korea and Japan violated the human rights of the Korean people. And so... In effect, they threw out a treaty between two sovereign states, and the Japanese side is saying you can't do that. That's the proximate cause. But of course, there's a long history of resentment in Korea, and sometimes amnesia in Japan about how Japan's uh, colonial occupation of Korea led to deculturalization, recruitment of young women uh, for the uh, Bureau of Japanese Army, and a whole host of Imperialist woes that uh, continue to be a central part of Korea's identity and not prominently featured in Japanese education or media. So, you have a view of the proximate cause, it's very legalistic, where, to be honest, I think most of world opinion is on Japan's side. And then you have this longer history between Japan and Korea, where I suspect most of world opinion is sort of on Korea's side. And then to make it even more complicated, within Japan, there is near total unity that Suga should not cave on this. Uh, from left to right, very broad and adamant opposition to any compromise to Korea. And in Korea, you have a very polarized situation where particularly conservatives would like to make progress, but progressives are opposed, so the domestic politics gun not get up. And then finally, you have the geopolitics, where Korea, for reasons of geography and history, is about as worried about China as Japan, but is not as willing to say so publicly, whereas Japan has geared up all of Asia and Europe and the US for a long-term competition with China, you know, from some safety at sea, uh, safety Korea doesn't have. So the geopolitics, the domestic politics, how they interpret history, it's a fine mess that Europe has gotten us into and Eva and Ramon will tell us how to get out. I'm, I'm kidding about Europe, it's not their fault.
0: I was gonna say, Eva, you know, Mike is just jealous that we're stuck in Bethesda and we can't get to Paris for croissants. So we're gonna go to you and <laughs> ask you what you think about this situation.
2: Yeah, well, clearly Europe now has the solutions actually to all the problems, so that's the trick. No, um, it's difficult to speak after Michael. I must say, um, of course, uh, the latest escalation or ongoing escalation of tensions is usually traced back to the 2018 Supreme Court ruling on on the compensation of forced labor. But if we look a little bit before that, we just see uh, a basically uninterrupted uh, string of incidents. Whether it's uh, you know the Korean uh, decision to dissolve the fund for comfort women in 2018 just a little bit before the court ruling or the comfort women issues itself. So basically we could spend a whole uh, day just constantly you know, trying to point fingers of who started it first and there's no point. So it all boils down to much deeper structural problems in the bilateral relationship, which is this massive open wound of unresolved historical grievances and issues that keeps poisoning the, the regional security environment. And of course, not just the bilateral relationship. And there I guess, diplomatically put, everyone holds a little share of responsibility. Japan clearly, to some respect, is guilty of not doing enough in fulfilling its duty of memory, at least from the European perspective. It's an issue that we keep bringing up with Japan. Michael already mentioned some of the historical revisionism, the historical textbook issues, you name it. And of course, that gives a good pretext for Korea and China and other neighbors to use and abuse a history at which. to put forward some of its political goals and and to steer domestic nationalism, which is really this venom in the region that we just can't get rid of. Uh, What I find interesting in the region is really the power of identity politics. You could say that, you know, any nation would always glorify its past and and demonize its enemies. But in, in nowhere, perhaps in the world, you see it to such an extent that it really impacts all spheres of activities of daily life almost. And and the uh, Korea-Japan relationship is the best example of how Two like minded liberal democratic countries can completely paralyze its relationship by such an issue. Now, I already mentioned that this is something that typically Europeans have been trying to address. There are so many initiatives for decades now that we're trying to put in place uh, bilaterally with Japan, but also there was a very interesting initiative between Germany, France, and Poland to hold dialogues with China, Korea and Japan, for instance, to to discuss jointly some of those historical issues. But the problem is that we always address a wrong audience. Obviously, the type of academics that enrolled in these initiatives were not the ones we needed to convince. So clearly, there must be political uh, victories and and, and goals that outweigh still are kind of worth the efforts and the energy and are worth the politicians to actually go down this way and and risk everything just to continue the tensions, if you want.
0: Victor, I want to get your reaction and also yours, Ramon.
3: I think everything Ava and Mike has said, I would not disagree with. Let me just add two additional points. The first is on the Korean side, what has led to this situation getting worse and worse is sort of the domestic politics of the Japan-Korea issue in South Korea, in the sense that, you know, we have a progressive government in power now in South Korea and, you know, much of the improvement in Japan-Korea relations, in fact, normalization in 1965 and the ties that existed between politicians and between the business environment have generally been right of center, if not far right. And so there's a, there's a natural political predisposition to be a little bit more skeptical of this. And I think that has certainly contributed some to it. When both Mike and I were in the government, the last time we had a progressive government in South Korea, you know, there were similar feelings with regard to Japan. Just, you know, there's a that political aspect of it, putting aside all of the proximate issue of court cases and everything else. From a standing start, it's generally not a good place when you have a progressive government in South Korea and when you had something like the Abe government in Japan. And second, going to Ava's point about identity politics, I mean, I think that This also reflects a growing sense of nationalism in South Korea. I mean, this is not a new argument. We've heard it before, but as South Korea grows, expands, its economy expands on the global stage, there's a growing sense of nationalism, both citizenship nationalism as well as ethnic nationalism that leads Korea to be much less tolerant of what they in the past perceived as slights by Japan, but then would just try to shuck it off. And so... You know, I think the combination of those things with everything else that Ava and Mike has discussed has helped to contribute to this real valley in the relationship today.
4: Yeah, I, I would add a couple of things on because I think it has been summarized pretty well. One point that I would add is, is that if you ask uh, the South Korean government, I mean, South Koreans, uh, they will actually point out to South Korea being removed from the white list uh, of preferred credit partners in August 2019, and, and they would argue this is the point when this became an, a trade war and escalated even further. I know that there are people who disagree with this view, but uh, if you discuss this with the South Korean government, this is clearly their view. And I think this is what makes it maybe more complicated than in the past, because in the past, the the trade component, the economic component, wasn't as prominent uh, as it is this time around, in which we have seen boycotts, for example, uh, among South Korean consumers. And this is obviously before the pandemic, uh, boycotts of Japanese goods. uh, You have also seen a decrease in trade, again, before the pandemic. So, going really uh, against the tide of strengthening economic relations that somehow have been shielded from politics. Uh, And the second aspect, I would link it to what uh, Victor has said about how South Korea feels maybe more assertive in international affairs, which I would say is not only South Korea. I mean, sitting in Europe, it has been interesting over the past two, three years. See, There have been calls, for example, for UK firms to make reparations for the slavery trade, right, in the 17th, 18th. 19th century. Now you see in Belgium, there are calls for reparations from the Belgian royal family and from Belgian firms for the colonization of Congo, in Spain, some Latin American countries also calling for reparations, even though Spanish colonies in Latin America, for the most part, they became independent 200 years ago. So so I think this is this global tide in which you see more and more countries and more and more people in these countries raising the issue of slavery in the past or uh, colonization. And I actually think that in the context of South Korean-Japanese relations, this is something that is not going to go away, that it will need to be managed, but I don't think it's going to go away because I I see this more in this global move towards calling on previous colonizers to to make reparations, even if a treaty has been signed in the past. You see how many people feel that the treaties don't really address the individuals uh, who suffer, not so much the countries, but the individuals who suffer due to slavery.
0: So let me ask you this, Mike. What's the path forward with the new government in Japan and with the new government in the United States?
1: Well, Prime Minister Suga is less ideological than Abe. That's well known. He's more of a pragmatist. But he's also super smart about domestic political landmines in Japan. And he has to uh, win his own election as prime minister, probably in the fall. And so I think he's going to take no risks on any issue before that. So I wouldn't look for anything other than small gestures. After that, he'll have a bit more latitude. But the reality is, he is not going to accept renegotiation of the 1965 treaty. And he's not going to pay reparations. And he's under almost zero pressure within Japan to do so. And almost zero pressure from the governments Japan cares about the US, Australia, UK, India. And so I don't think there's a breakthrough coming. I think three things might improve this. One is Suga and Moon are smarter about changing the uh, environment. There could be summit meetings, there could be gestures, there could be meetings of the two leaders with students from both countries. There's a long menu you could come up with of steps that would signal reconciliation while setting aside for a harder negotiation the actual legal issue, that's possible. And the second thing is the Biden administration could play smart on this. A stupid play would be to lecture both countries publicly. A smart play would be to quietly behind the scenes encourage reconciliation. And then the third thing that always saves Japan-Korea relations, which we can expect is North Korea. North Korea will do something bad (laughs) in the next year or two. And that always drives Japan and Korea closer together and reminds them who the real bad guy is. It's a bad state of strategy when you're depending on North Korea to get you out of a problem. But that may be where we are. Eva, Ramon,
0: do you think that this new administration coming in might be prone to lecturing both South Korea and Japan in this
4: next cycle? It seems to me that uh, it is well understood in Washington that telling South Korea and Japan, you know, you have to sit down and fix this uh, openly. Uh, it's not going to play well in South Korea. I think Japan also wouldn't play well, right? Because uh, it would be, so to speak, hand-holding by the U.S. And I think the, this issue has to be solved between the two countries bilaterally. And the U.S. can definitely play a supportive role. And, and I would imagine it would play a, a supportive role, but I think it has to be solved by the two countries. I mean, I do agree with Mike uh, that there are many things that can be done You might have seen the announcement that that South Korea, for example, is going to be invited to the G7 meeting uh, next year. It has been participating in the Indo-Pacific Plus meetings, so not the free and open Indo-Pacific core four-country meetings, but it has been participating in the expanded meetings together with New Zealand and other countries. The RCP trade agreement has just been signed. So there are all these uh, steps that can be taken at the multilateral level uh, to signal cooperation between both of them. Plus, uh, bilaterally, we have the Tokyo Olympics coming up uh, next year. I would imagine that the moon will be visiting uh, Japan, and we can expect maybe even a trilateral including uh, President Biden, but at least a bilateral with Suga. So, so, so that you can take these steps to, to signal that even though the core issue has not been solved, that it doesn't stop uh, cooperation taking place. Uh, coming from Europe, I would point out actually that uh, the South Korean and the Japanese Navy, together with the EU Navy, Uh, have been uh, conducting joint exercises of the Gulf of Aden, right, the anti piracy mission that we see off the coast of Somalia. So you see cooperation taking place in different settings which are not as politicized. And I would also point out one other thing on this theme of bilateral relations between both of them, that even though it is true that there has been an economic boycott in South Korea of Japanese products, I mean, you also see When it comes to -to people-to-people relations between students, between politicians, in congresses on both sides, academics as well, obviously, all these different groups continue to have a strong bond. So you have these links that have not really disappeared between both countries. We we don't focus on them for various reasons, because this is not the main political issue between both of them. But I think that's a a good entry point to strengthen cooperation, again, even if the core issue might be unresolved for a period of time. Eva, do you want to jump in on that?
2: Yeah. Well, I'm actually reasonably optimistic, to be honest. I think that things cannot get worse. That's that's for sure, which is already a good news. So you could qualify the relationship as bad, but stabilized at least. And in a way, at least from the Suga administration uh, perspective, well, I perfectly agree with what Michael said. I think that the negotiation style, the personal style would would help. So certainly less charismatic than Abe, but more bureaucratic, which, which can help for the regional tensions. But you could see since the beginning, basically, a, a willingness on both sides to repair those ties. I mean, there was an exchange of letters already since September. There was a continuation of, of dialogue. There was a working level meetings, well, continuation of the working level meetings that started in February 12, 2020, with the latest one uh, in, in October. And I think that basically there's a realization that there are so much more that the countries need to be working on in common that eventually or the historical issues won't be resolved, that I must agree with, but there will be uh, really too many issues that need to be addressed. And it doesn't need to be North Korea. It would be uh, the post-COVID reconstruction. It would be economic cooperation. As Michael said, in the economic situation and domestic uh, reforms will be at uh, the top priority for abet but it also goes through an uh, improvement possibly of ties uh, with Korea in the prospect of economic recovery in the region. So I'm I'm reasonably optimistic there. I think that the latest uh, working level meetings is actually a good example. On the Japanese side, we had the director of the Asia-Pacific Affairs uh, and the Foreign Affairs Ministry, uh, Shigeki Takizaki, who happens to be also the envoy for nuclear affairs. And he used the visit to actually meet his counterpart to talk about North Korea. So I think it's a very good example Uh, that you have this political need eventually to kind of meet uh, and discuss those painful issues, but you also use the opportunity to have more constructive discussions, which to me is a hugely positive
3: or hopeful development.
0: Victor, does Moon have a plan going forward?
3: Yeah, I think he does. I mean, the first thing is that when we say that our outlook for japan korea relations is positive because it's as bad as it could ever be and we're (laughs) relying on North Korea to get us out of it. That's our bar, right? <laughs> yeah. That's our bar for Japan career relations. But I do think Moon has a plan. I mean, first, Suga is not Abe. And much as we know how Abe actually did care about Japan korea relations, it was just not going to work just given who Abe was. And so Suga is a very different type of person than Abe, you know, his background and everything. And he's a new leader. So that helps. Yeah, I do think Moon has a plan. So the way I would put this is I think there could be an improvement in Japan-Korea relations through the second quarter of 2021, but it would not have anything to do with South Korea's desire to reconcile with Japan. Interesting. And what I mean by that, and I think the South Koreans are already starting to do this, really trying to work with the Japanese and butter them up to try to get them to invite the North Korean leader or some high-level representative From North Korea to the Tokyo Olympics in 2021. You know, particularly the Moon government have used sports diplomacy as a way to try to make breakthroughs. You know, that's how they ended up doing the summit with Trump, using interaction at their Olympics, the Winter Olympics that they held in 2018. So I think that is something that they're going to work hard at. I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of the lower level dialogue channels have been reopened. And it wouldn't surprise me if Moon and his national security advisor really tried to push this agenda with Suga and his chief cabinet secretary. In terms of the Biden administration, you know, when Tony Blinken, the incoming secretary of state, was deputy secretary, he instituted on the advice of his staff these quarterly trilateral deputy foreign minister meetings, US-Japan, South Korea trilateral foreign minister meetings, which was a great action forcing event that cyclically required the three bureaucracies to come up with deliverables for each of those meetings. And so I think based on that, he must have internalized the importance of this three-way relationship. And it wouldn't surprise me if they tried to reinstitute that again, you know, at the deputy secretary, deputy foreign minister level to sort of kickstart this engine and, and get it moving again. I would say the one time challenge is that, you know, these court cases, I think the August ruling was appealed and a decision has to be coming pretty soon. And so there's a time issue. And then there's a November ruling, I think. I don't know if that one's been appealed yet, but I think the appeal on the August ruling may come down soon. And you know, of course, they could find a way to delay it, but that could really mess things up. But I think because the Moon government really is interested in this plan to try to get Kim or his sister to Tokyo in 2021, that may slow down this court proceeding, even though these are supposed to be two separate things, right?
0: How important is it to Moon and his government to get Kim or Kim's sister to Tokyo 2021? And and why would that be so significant for them?
3: Well, it's a, they're looking for a break. They're looking to continue the summit diplomacy that Trump started. They're looking to try to maintain that high-level contact. It's the one accomplishment they say they can make on this is that they've really been able to sort of break the ice and have regular contact at the highest levels.
0: And they don't expect that during Biden.
3: Well, it's going to be hard during Biden. And trying to facilitate that as much as they can, I think, is, is something that they want to do. And I think, you know, they'll try to make the argument that it's an opportunity for Japan, too. I mean, Japan wouldn't do this just for South Korea. They would have to be an opportunity for Japan. And Abe wanted to join in the summer tree, but that never worked. And so I don't know. I don't know how Mike or Ramon or ever feel about how interested Suga would be in this. I mean, I think Mike's right. He's going to be very careful. But I guess part of it depends on when the election is, too.
1: I think that's right. And the Olympics are really an important source of tailwind for Suga in the election, which is why I think he'll do it the election after and I think will be risk-averse in the Olympics. I think his instinct on this proposal from South Korea will be not to lose control of the overall narrative about the Olympics. But the reason that he might go for the South Korean proposal is because, as Victor said, Abe said he would meet with Kim Jong-un without preconditions. Ironically, at a time when he was refusing to meet with South Korean leader Moon Jae-in, but he did say he'd do it because the Japanese people, while they overwhelmingly distrust and dislike North Korea, they do want their government to try to do something diplomatically to get back the Japanese who were abducted by North Korea. And so he has room to do this. My guess is he won't go for it, but he might. You know, just to really wrap all this up, and I want to put this to all of you, why should we all care
0: for better Japan-U.S. relations from a U.S. and European perspective? Like, why is this important now? And for Mike and Victor, how high of a priority do you think this is going to be in a Biden administration?
1: Well, I think it's going to be a pretty high priority in part because of Tony Blinken's personal experience managing this trilateral relationship, but also because the Biden administration's coming in more skeptical about possibility of North Korean diplomacy and more worried about China's geopolitical ambitions than they were when they were in government with the Obama administration. The last four years have seen a deterioration in U.S.-China relations, not primarily because of the Trump administration's rhetoric, but because Beijing is doing things from Hong Kong to Xinjiang to the Himalayas to the East China Sea that are very aggressive. And so in that context, I think the Biden administration will emphasize this because on the North Korean problem, deterrence now really rests not just on the US-Korea alliance, it really rests on the ability of the US-Japan alliance to back that alliance up in a crisis, in wartime. And Japan now is in North Korean missile range. So if the two militaries, which by the way, get along quite well If the Japanese Korean militaries can't work together, deterrence is going to be weaker on the peninsula. And then vis-a-vis China, if the narrative between Tokyo and Seoul is all about grievances from the past and Japanese imperialism and not about the common democratic norms that Japan and Korea share, that's a complete onside goal for us. It helps China continue to perpetuate the narrative that alliances, democracy are things of the past. The future is about, you know, countries that have grievances against you know, Western imperialism and Japan coming together. And it suggests that China can split apart U.S. alliances in Asia to have more latitude to pursue its course of goals. So I think this is how the Biden people see it. It's really important for the North Korea deterrence problem and then for not containing China, but getting leverage and dealing with China after four or five years of what everyone in Washington sees as a very aggressive Chinese stance towards uh, countries, not just in Asia, in Europe, too. I mean, what China's done to Norway, to Canada, to Australia has changed the view, I think, for the Biden folks.
0: Eva, do you want to jump in?
2: Yeah, well, I think the stakes are clearly more important or higher and, and, and kind of more direct for the US than they are for the EU, let's be honest. But in general terms, the kind of obviously a a more stable and better uh, relationship and and security and defense cooperation between Korea and Japan is this additional beacon of stability in the region. And this is something that was visible under the Trump administration as well, whether you have a declining US presence and potentially more divided uh, Korea and Japan that creates a strategic space for China or Russia to get in. And that is bad news for everyone. I mean, there would be, you know, a a zillion of, of practical issues from the European perspective that we could discuss from the kind of strategic partner agreement view, because you have an agreement with Japan and with Korea, which eventually, you know, on the similar issues on cybersecurity, on maritime security, on crisis prevention, peacekeeping, etc., etc. that we would love to work with the two partners and we can't. So obviously that would be a very practical avenue, but also in kind of steering regional integration, you know, that that's, uh, that's one of the sort of European way of, of doing things and trying to get everyone on the same board. And we're very supportive of, of some of the South Korean initiatives, the Northeast Asia Peace and Cooperation Initiative, and the Ulaanbaatar Dialogue, and the Trilateral Cooperation Secretariat, etc., and you name it. So clearly, this is one of the official lines, if you want, uh, of, of the EU in, in trying to stabilize the region in general is through this trust politique, which is completely blocked now with having the two most crucial like-minded democracies facing off. So to me, it's a terrible wasted opportunity and it would be an immensely added value for regional security, for our ties and potential also for the, let's say, transatlantic
4: cooperation in Asia as well.
0: Want to go to Ramon and then give Victor the last word?
4: Absolutely. I, I would add to what Deva has said, which I agree with two points. One of them, if we turn it around, you see from the Japanese and the Korean perspective, more interest in Brussels, in what is going on in Europe, more interest in cooperation. And I think even uh, Eva's Japan program on my career chair actually is a testament to this, right? That the two of them want to have a greater presence in Brussels. You see recently there was a foreign minister's meeting in NATO and, and you saw both the Korean and the Japanese foreign minister attending along with Australia, uh, other countries that are not part of NATO as well. So you see this emphasis uh, not only on the European side, but on the other side on how we can cooperate together. And obviously, multilateralism, as, as Eva has mentioned, is the cornerstone of the European Union, where it wants to cooperate with Asian partners. But if you look both at the EU and at NATO, issues such as uh, cybersecurity, obviously the rise of China. I mean, these are issues on which the Europeans are very adamant. We have to cooperate not only with the US, but we have to cooperate with Asian partners. And top of the list are Japan and, and Korea. Uh, Clearly from a European perspective, not only because all of them are like-minded partners, but also because they have capabilities. It's very good to say you're a democracy, but Japan and Korea have capabilities. They can deploy capabilities, they can deploy the military overseas if necessary. Now we see it with uh, Japan, the Self-Defense Forces, for example, being deployed uh, not only in the vicinity, but in other parts of the world as well. And they have the economic capabilities as well. So you need to build uh, infrastructure, for example. Well, they can contribute to build infrastructure, they can provide aid, and, and this is very important, plus the diplomatic capabilities. Both of them have tremendous diplomatic corps, you know, very, very skillful, and they are everywhere across the world. multiple embassies, very active in international organizations. Very few Asian countries can actually say that. Probably the other Asian country that is as active is is China, right? But it's obviously not a like-minded partner. So that would be uh, the first point. And the second point, I think Eva made a raised a crucial issue, which is how Europe really approaches the transatlantic relationship. And obviously there's huge interest on Europe and the US cooperating in Asia Uh, with regards to China, very clearly. I mean, it's very much focused on the rise of China. but Also, more broadly, you know, how to bring stability to the region, uh, how to open up markets in the region, right, being a cornerstone of the European Union. And I think you will see probably from the European side, more emphasis on how the US, Europe can work together to try to deal with China. And this would mean how they can work together with Japan and Korea in different settings. And I go back to the previous point just to finish off, which is the the G7 point. I mean, I think that this is crucial. The fact that Korea has been invited to the G7, which is the pinnacle really of of, of South Korean diplomacy, probably the most important issue in South Korean diplomacy since 1992 really, when normalization with China took place. And you have this forum in which you have like-minded Asian countries, Japan, Korea, Australia, if you want to include Australia and India, that have also been invited. Together with the US, together with Europe, discussing not only economics, but discussing uh, security, discussing what is going on in East Asia. Great. Victor. So, why
3: this matters to the United States or to Americans, the improvement in Japan Korea relations and the trilateral relationship? I mean, I think the answer there is that the cooperation, well coordinated policies, good relations among the three allies, it sort of plugs into everything else that. The United States would like to do around the world. Obviously, it plugs into the whole question of China's rise. It plugs into North Korea, but more broadly, Biden's emphasis on sort of multilateral diplomacy, which there will be. If there's a Biden administration's successor to the free and open Indo Pacific, you know, South Korea and Japan are important to that. If there's a Biden continuation by a different name of the so called clean networks or next generation wireless that is, you know, free from vulnerabilities. From the CCP, you know, the the Korea and Japan are important to that. If there is a successor to supply chain resilience, so-called economic prosperity network, Korea and Japan are important to that. If there is a successor to things like responsible and transparent overseas development assistance, then Korea and Japan are important to that because they're both big ODA providers around the world. So it plugs into every aspect of what Americans care about around the world. But I will say that one of the big issues going forward in terms of all of these sorts of things, and to the extent that Korea and Japan are partners and G7 and all these other things, is in a sense, there is still a shade different view of how Korea sees China than many of these other countries. Now, the EU views on China have changed a great deal. Many years ago, when Mike and I were in government, don't take this personally, but the EU really didn't have a sort of strategic view on China. It was all commercial. That was all it was. And, you know, that's clearly been changing now. And Korea's latest argument now is that they understand the rise of China, but they think that policies towards China need to be tailored to individual countries' situation. You know, they're looking at the sort of pressure that Australia is under now and Japan and they don't want to suffer the same sort of pain they suffered after the THAAD controversy. So they're calling for more tailored approaches to China. And, you know, I'm sure they'll make this argument in the G7 and in every multilateral forum, but that will be challenging, you know, and I think that'll be challenging for the trilateral relationship too, because the United States and Japan are kind of on one page when it comes to China and Korea is sort of looking for a different page to be on, but one that's not too far. From where the us and japan are and that's going to be tough that's going to be tough to do
0: i want to thank all of you for being on the impossible state today this is a great episode i think we all learned a lot and happy holidays to everybody
3: happy holidays thank you
0: Thanks.
2: thanks for having us
0: if you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state email us at impossiblestate@csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean Peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there, too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.